Well, all right. Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of First Peter. We are in First Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at a whopping three verses this morning. Verses 10 through 12 of First Peter chapter 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. All right, Peter is writing, and he says, starting in verse 10, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you, to those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. The title of my study this morning is How Great a Salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in this place, Lord, where we know that your presence is here. We have your word on our, our laps to, to speak to our hearts today, Lord, and so we just in, invite Lord, you in. We invite you, Lord, to speak to our hearts. To Lord, help us to have ears to hear what you have to say to us, your church, this morning. We also pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us this service that does not have a personal relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. They're not saved. They're not born again. Would you especially touch them today, Lord? But we thank you again for this time. We pray your blessing on it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. found a story about a man who accompanied his friend home for dinner. And he was impressed at the way his friend entered his house. He asked his wife how her day went, and he told her that she looked pretty. And then after that, after they embraced, she, you know, served dinner. And after they ate, the husband complimented his wife on the meal and thanked her for it. Well, when the two men were alone, the visitor asked, why do you treat your wife so well? Well, because she deserves it, and it makes our marriage happier, replied the host. When pressed... The visitor decided to adopt the idea, so arriving home, he embraced his wife and said, You look wonderful. For good measure, he added, Sweetheart, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Just then his wife burst into tears. Bewildered, he asked her, What in the world's the matter? She wept. What a day. Billy fought at school. The refrigerator quit and spoiled the groceries. And now you've come home drunk. The lady didn't understand her husband's behavior because she had been taken for granted for much too long. I think many of us take our our great salvation for granted and we don't understand, we don't wonder at it. We're not amazed by it as we once were. Let me ask you this morning, are you still amazed by your salvation? Are you guilty of taking it for granted? I remember the first time that I was asked the question, are you saved? It was 16 years, I was 16 years old, and I got invited to the Sunday evening service, and the place was packed, and there the pastor stood at the pulpit, and he posed this question, are you saved? And I thought, from what? I had no clue. But then he says, Jesus saves. 
I still had no clue at that point, but it was the first time when it came to God that I realized I needed something that I didn't have. And that was salvation. Now it would be five years later, and I was 21 years old, where I would give my life to Jesus Christ. But I can honestly say that the road to my salvation started back when I was asked the question, are you saved? So I want to ask the question this morning to maybe someone who has who's never been asked the question, are you saved? Because here in First Peter, Peter's talking about salvation. He's been writing to, writing to these persecuted believers who have, we have seen have been scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And he wants to understand how great this salvation is that we truly have. That's why what's on Peter's mind as he writes these next verses is salvation. In fact, so far, the word salvation appears three times. It's a focus. It's a highlight of the book. Look at verse 5. Peter says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Look at verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then now in verse 10, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Now, the word salvation, I mean, it's a great word. There's nothing more assuring, more comforting in all the English language than this word salvation. It appears 400 times in Scripture, saved, saving, salvation, 400 times. It's broad in its, in its scope of its meaning. It can mean anything from being saved physically from harm's way to being saved eternally from sin and death and hell. You know, in our great cities today, we need salvation from lawlessness. The murders, the muggings, the violent crimes that are being committed. We have friends and family that, that need, desperately need salvation. But the Bible teaches that we've all broken God's laws. We've all sinned against God. We, we are all lawless. We are all in need of salvation. And for us that are saved, we need to make sure we don't take it for granted. Listen, salvation has been God's plan all along. I think of Paul's words to Timothy when he said, Timothy, God desires all men to be saved. That's God's desire, that God's great hope is that people would come to salvation. And that's what Peter's talking about in these three verses. So if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things when it comes to salvation. Number one, the prophets predicted it. Number two, the angels pondered it. And number three, Jesus provided it. Number one, the prophets predicted it. Look at verse 10. Again, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Literally, the prophets were intrigued by God's plan of salvation and prophesied of it, but didn't quite understand it. Now, who were the prophets? Well, prophets were the spokesmen for God. Look at them as, as press secretaries or news announcers, but instead of fake news, you know, this is the real deal, straight from the throne room of God. And it's like they came and they said, and now a word from our Creator. And they gave this message, something that God wanted the people to hear. And their message centered upon two principles, two things. They proclaimed God's Word and they predicted future events. They proclaimed God's words and predicted future events. And all of it was in anticipation of salvation, all pointing towards salvation. Listen, no other holy book makes the predictions the Bible does and then backs them up by coming true 100% of the time. And the Bible just doesn't predict future events once or twice. It predicts future events hundreds of times. And it's worth noting that two-thirds of the entire Bible is prophecy as God spoke to the prophets. Now, even though all throughout history God spoke to the prophets concerning themselves, the prophets themselves never really made the connections in their minds. They couldn't fully understand. 
Verse 12 says that the big picture was not revealed to them. You might say, not in a bad way, that, that the lights were on but nobody was home, or the, the wheel was spinning but the hamster's dead, or, or you know, the, the, the gate's down, the lights are flashing but the train isn't coming. You know, all of those sayings that you have out there, a few fries short of a happy meal, one oar's in the water, okay, I'll stop, but, but they could go on and on and, and point the point is the prophets didn't get the big picture. They couldn't understand this full idea of salvation. So at some point, the prophets go, you know, maybe what we're writing is going to be fulfilled in a distant time, far into the future, that it wasn't going to happen in their time. Now, some things they predicted did happen during their time, but much of what was going on was going to happen beyond their time. They were, in verse 11, as we read, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified before in the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. See, they, they couldn't make the connection between a suffering Savior and a reigning King. They saw the cross in Psalm 22, but they saw the Messiah coming in power and glory to the earth to establish his kingdom in Isaiah chapter 11. They saw the glory of Psalm 2. However, they also saw the suffering of Isaiah 53. They saw the triumph on the Mount of Olives where the returning Messiah will stand, but they also saw the blood on Mount Calvary upon which Messiah would die. How could that be? They must have, have, have wondered. How, that he would be despised, rejected, and smitten, suffering, yet ruling and reigning. This doesn't make sense. Again, they saw the Mount of Olives and they saw the Mount of, of, of Calvary. But what they didn't see was, was the valley between the two, a valley of about 2,000 years. They didn't understand that they were writing of two comings. The Messiah would come as a suffering Savior before returning as a conquering King. So you and I are living in a unique point of time, a point of history, that interval between the suffering of Christ, which is in the past, and the glory of Christ is in the future. We live in an age of grace where God has given all mankind the opportunity for salvation. The prophets couldn't understand this age that we're living in. What's interesting is what we've been going through in the book of Isaiah on Wednesday nights. And as I shared already, we're almost done. Two more chapters. But we came across Isaiah 61 a few weeks ago. And uh, think about this. From the time between the Old and the New Testament is about 400 years. From the book of Malachi to the book of, of Matthew, about 400 years. Up to that point, in, in between time, that there was no angelic appearances, no miracles, no prophets speaking out for the Lord. But then Jesus is born, and some 30 years old, he walks into the synagogue, he walks up to the Holy Scriptures, opens it up right to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, and he begins to read verse 1 of chapter 61. And this is what he reads. You can look it up on the screen. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And at that point, Luke verse four, chapter 4, verse 21 tells us that Jesus stopped reading right there, turned to the crowd and said this, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Closes the book, goes and sits back down. I mean, what a statement. What I want you to notice here is that Jesus didn't keep on reading the, the rest of verse 2 or 3 or on into chapter 61. Why didn't he go on with Isaiah's words? Because what he had to read had to do with his first coming and why he was there. The rest of chapter 2, the rest of the chapter deals with his second coming and his millennial reign. At his first coming, Jesus came to preach the good news to the poor. 
He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to set the captives free, to give his life as a ransom for many. Here in Isaiah 61.2, he said he is here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But the rest of verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That hasn't happened yet. That has to do with the, the, the second coming in the great tribulation period. See, when Jesus returns a second time, metaphorically, Jesus will open up the book of Isaiah chapter 61 and he'll complete it. He'll complete what he started, the day of the vengeance of our God. And it will be fulfilled to a T. But the reason I point this out and what's amazing about this is right there in Isaiah 61, we have a definite division between the two comings of the Messiah, all within just one verse. But the prophets, they didn't get it. They didn't get the Messiah that would first come as a lamb of the God, a lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, that he would come first lowly and riding on, on a donkey. But when he comes back a second time, he'll come on a white horse to take back which is, he purchased with his blood this earth. He came the first time to bring salvation, to pay the price for man's sin. He will come a second time to judge the living and the dead. And let me say this, we have never been closer to the Lord's return than we are right now. I look at things going on in our world today and, and I'm saying Jesus should return and could return at any moment. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that should excite you. That should get you excited. I mean, you don't dread the day, you look forward to it. You can say like the Apostle John said, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if you're not a believer this morning, then you're not saved. And that could be very frightening because all those that reject the free gift of God's salvation will spend eternity separated from God in outer darkness, suffering miserably for all eternity. And so Peter here is telling us that the prophets wrote some things which they themselves did not fully grasp, though they searched for them their meaning diligently. And I'm sure Isaiah didn't get Isaiah 61. I'm sure many of the prophets didn't get what they were writing. You know, to me, it's kind of like the old, remember the old connect the dots game? You had all these dots and there was a picture on them, but you didn't see what the picture was until you connected all the dots. And that's what these prophets were doing. Month after month, year after year, century after century, the Spirit of God would speak to the hearts of these prophets and they would record what God said and connect this dot to that dot to this dot to that dot. But they didn't see the big picture. They would record the prophecies of concerning the coming of Jesus that they didn't fully understand or grasp how it all fit together. They didn't see the, the finished product. Do you know that there are 330 predictions that were made about Jesus Christ, what he would do, where he would be, where he would be born, what would happen to him for his first coming? 330. I won't read all 330, but let me give you maybe about 16 of them, okay? Here's just a few. They predicted he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7:14 that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, that he would be born into the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10, that his ministry would begin in Galilee, Isaiah 9.1. They predicted that he would work miracles, Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, that he would enter into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, Zechariah 9, verse 9, that a friend would betray him, Psalm 41.9, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12, they predicted that he would be wounded and bruised for our sins, Isaiah 53, 5. That his hands and his feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, 16. They predicted that he would be crucified between two thieves, Isaiah 53, 12. They predicted that his garments would be torn and those around would cast lots for them, Psalm 22, 18. They further predicted that not a bone in his body would be broken, Psalm 34, 20 that his side would be pierced, Zechariah 12.10. They predicted he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53.9, nine, 
And they predicted that he would rise from the dead. Psalm 16.9. Just 16 predictions that doesn't even begin to cover all the glories that would follow. The millennial reign of Christ. His return. So you have men like Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and, and, and these prophets speaking of, of these things. I mean, like 25 men who didn't know each other over thousands of years, all trying to put together this puzzle. It's like, you know, a thousand piece puzzle, jigsaw puzzle. Every one of them has a few of the pieces and, and they record it. They say it, but they don't see the big picture. They don't have the, the box and they, they can't see the cover of the box. It's kind of like the story about a dad who was sitting and watching television with his little boy or when his little boy came running over to him. I said, Daddy, can you play with me? Well, Dad enjoys playing with his son and plans to give him plenty of time, but not just yet. Soon, son, soon, says Dad, when this program I'm watching is over. Well, five minutes later, the boy returns. Daddy, can we play now? Soon, soon, son, as soon as this program's done. Two minutes later, the little boy returns. Daddy, it's time to play. Is it time to play yet? Well, Dad realizes he's not going to get to watch the end of his program. So he decides to set his son to a task that will take some time. He notices there's a picture of a, of a world, of the world on the front page of the newspaper just there in front of him. So he tears the picture out and he rips it into small pieces. He says, now, son, I've got a, a game for you to play. You take the, the pieces of this picture of the world and you put them back together again and then we'll play together. So the little boy eagerly takes the pieces away with him and he sets to work. And dad's relieved because now I can watch the, the, the rest of my program. But to the dad's amazement, his son is back within five minutes. and says, Dad, I'm all finished. Can we play now? Well, the father's stunned. When he turns around to see his son holding up the picture of the world, each piece sticky taped right into the right position. Dad's thinking, I got a child prodigy on my hand. I mean, how did you do this so quickly? He asked. That would have taken me at least 20 minutes and I'm an adult. The little boy says, oh, it was easy, Daddy. On the back of the world was a picture of a person. So I put the person together, and that's when the world came together. You see, on the back of the pages of the prophets is Jesus. He is our salvation. The, the prophets are trying to put the pieces together, but they didn't see the big picture. We turn it over, and we see it's Jesus. We see how the pieces come together. And so Peter who also sees the big picture, says to us, even though the prophets couldn't make it out, says, we have, we see it. Look at verse 12. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering to us the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. We'll look at that in a moment. But here again, Peter's saying through the prophets, Though they couldn't make it out, their purpose in writing it down was for us. So that we could see from, from Genesis to, the, to Malachi, the Old Testament all pointed to Jesus Christ. All the words of the prophets pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Salvation has come. The connection has been made. So number one, the prophets predicted it. Now this brings us to point number two when it comes to salvation. And that is the angels pondered it. Now, angels are interesting beings. God uses them in, in amazing ways. In 1986, Billy Graham wrote a book about angels. In it, he recounts the most amazing story. John Payton was a missionary in the New uh, uh, Hebrides Islands. And on one night, the warriors from one of the local tribes surrounded their mission headquarters. They're planning to burn the Paytons out and kill them. Well, as you can imagine, John Payton and his wife were terrified and prayed all throughout the night that God would save them. When daylight came, they were astonished to see that the warriors left without, without attacking them, without touching them. 
Well, a year later, the chief of the tribe became a Christian. And during the course of the conversations, John Payton asked the chief about that night. What kept your warriors from burning down the house and killing them? The chief uh, asked, well, who were all those men you had there with you? Payton replied, there was no other men with us. It was just my wife and I. Well, the chief tells Payton that he and his warriors had seen hundreds of men standing guard around the mission headquarters, men with shining clothes and holding swords drawn. Amazing story. You know, when it comes to angels, I'm sure they're always ready and excited to be used by the Lord. Oh, Lord, send me. I mean, I'm ready. Let's go, Lord. But when it comes to salvation and this thing that God calls grace, they are really passionate about it. I mean, Peter says in the last part of verse 12 here that this gospel of grace, this salvation has been preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, are things which angels desire to look into. The angels desire to look into this. That word desire, it's a strong word. It means a passionate, intense desire. Jesus used the same word uh, during Passover when he said in Luke twenty-two fifteen, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then Peter says, when it comes to salvation, the angels desire to, to look into. That, that phrase, look into, means to, to stoop sideways. You know, it's used when Peter and John get to the empty tomb and they, they stoop in to look down and see that Jesus is not there. It has the idea of bending forward, stretching their the neck out to look to something. I want to see what's going on down here. That's what Peter's saying going on with the angels. They're at the, they're at the edge of their seats straining their necks with intense longing, looking to see the salvation that, that God has made available to us. Listen, they're radically interested in seeing what's going on here on earth and how it's playing out. Why? Because they've seen it from the beginning. They've seen the whole story. I mean, let's think about what they've seen already. First, they saw, the angels saw Lucifer rebel and cast out of heaven along with one-third of their fellow angelic beings. They saw God create this, 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 this man, and they saw man rebel and consequently, consequently get cast out of the Garden of Eden. They watched as a few angels were dispatched to guard the, the, the tree of life to keep Adam and Eve from eating that after they have eaten the forbidden fruit. They watched as God reached out to man and told Eve that that, that which was going to come forth from the seed of a woman will crush Satan. They watched as the plan unfolded as the Lord called a man by the name of Abraham to come and follow him and, and to have a son born at, a, at an old age for Abraham. And they saw how through Abraham God was going to start a new nation, the Hebrews, followers of Yahweh. They saw how Abraham's seed would come, this one who would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They also watched how the Lord sent two angels to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to, to save his servant Lot out of that city. And his family, but before he, destroyed, before he destroyed the cities, which was a sign, a preview of what he would do to a world that would reject his love. These angels witnessed the Lord giving instructions to Moses in building the Ark of the Covenant and upon it the mercy seat. They would look down upon uh, the, the, the very spot where the priest on the Day of Atonement sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice. And then they would watch as God, the Son, Jesus, was sent to fulfill the mission as He would lower Himself and come to this earth being born as a, as a baby. I mean, think about this. Who was present at the birth of Jesus? Angels were right there, right? I mean, they announced it. They watched as some of their fellow angels were sent to go and sing praises to a group of shepherds in the field. Another angel went and gave a special message to Joseph that, that the child inside Mary is the Son of God. They watched 
As Jesus came to his own and his, his own received him not, they watched in horror as Jesus carried the cross up that hill called Calvary outside the city of Jerusalem. And they watched as he was nailed to the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then they rejoiced at the resurrection. They rejoiced as Jesus broke the chains of death. After all, who was there at the empty tomb of Jesus when he rose from the dead and, and appeared to the woman? A couple of angels. See, God's plan of redemption was accomplished. The price was paid. Sinners became saints. Enemies became friends. And salvation has come. They saw what Jesus did for all of mankind. And they look at us now and go, Do you see how great your salvation is? Do you see what God has done for you? Why on earth would you reject such an offer of salvation? They're perplexed with us. Why is that? Well, here's a simple answer. Because angels can't be saved. Only human beings can Only human beings can take part in the redemption that comes through believing in Jesus Christ. Listen, there's all kinds of angels. There's archangels, there's guardian angels, there's fallen angels, there's faithful angels, bad angels and good angels, elect angels. But there's no saved angels. We can be saved. They cannot. Only humans can experience God's saving grace. Why is that? Well, I personally believe it's because the angels that fell, they were in the presence of God. They beheld His beauty. They beheld his, the, the, the glory and awe and wonder. They saw His power and glory. And they could look directly into the face of God and still they chose to sin. Still they chose to rebel. Therefore, there, there was no second chance. Mankind is not face to face with God, though one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. But until then, God has given man a second chance in order to find salvation through faith and be in His presence forever. That's why the angels ponder this whole aspect of salvation. That's why the angels are looking down and going, man, this salvation, this thing is interesting. It's marvelous. And they ponder it. But here's also why I think the angels ponder our salvation. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, the angels watched as God gave his very best to this earth's worst. And I think they're fascinated by that. When they see a changed life, it amazes them. They're fascinated when a criminal becomes a missionary. Or when a a blasphemer becomes a born-again child of God. When a drug addict becomes a pastor. They see a changed life in a person and it amazes them. Also, one more thing about angels. I think they're very curious about a little phrase that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think maybe it might have been bothering them ever since Paul wrote it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3 says this. Do you not know that we shall judge angels... How much more things that pertain to this life? And I can just see the angels up in heaven going, what? What's up with that? What, what, what? These human beings who are made a little lower than the angels, God's word says. These Christians who rarely pray, who don't witness much, who take for granted their salvation. They don't even know that much about us. Angels, except, you know, they think that all we do is fly around all day and eat angel food cake. You know, they're going to judge us. But it's true. As a Christian, you with Christ are going to judge the angels and even make that final pronouncement for those angelic beings that have fallen. Now here's something special that you can do this morning if you really, if you haven't done so already that would really make these angels day, really, really get them excited. If you're not already, you can get saved. Listen to Luke 15 verse 10. Jesus says, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I mean, just picture these huge angelic beings as they stoop down with a passionate, intense desire to see a person in the process of salvation. 
And all the angels, they're like leaning over and they're looking down and, 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 and they're going, look, 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 it's about to happen. Man, man the, the, the person is sharing their faith with them. Oh, he's listening. He's taking it in. Look, it's, it's going to happen. And then the person says, oh, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. Uh, I want to be born again. And then the angel, yes, party time. Yes, yes. Pray. I mean, they're excited over this. I mean, I bet on a Sunday morning they're appearing in the churches all over the world just for one person to raise their hand to take that step of faith toward salvation. And, and no doubt they're also probably waiting in great, great, great anticipation for any one of us to share the gospel. Why? Because they see what a big deal our salvation is. This is an opportunity for a person to get right with God. They see the offering that God is making to mankind a second chance. Why on earth would you not want to get these good news out? I would venture to say that they are chomping at the bit themselves just to have the opportunity. Oh, Lord, let us add them. Let us share the gospel. Let us share the good news. Actually, according to Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, they're going to get the chance. During the great tribulation period that will come upon the earth, listen to what John writes in verses 6 and 7 of Revelation 14. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. I mean, this is great. The angels are getting a chance to preach. They're itching at the chance to preach. My question is, are we... Are we just as excited as the angels are when, when one sinner comes to repentance? Are we just as, as excited as the angels are to be given the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel, to share this thing called salvation? Prophets wrote about it. Angels pondered it. Are we ready to preach it? And please don't say something like, well, I would, but you know, I don't, I don't want to make waves. I don't want to offend anyone. Really? Yeah, you see, it's a disturbing message, and I don't want to offend anyone I work with. It might make my work environment really uncomfortable. And, and while they're so busy, and I don't really want to disturb them. Well, let's look at this from a different perspective. The same person is your neighbor, and their house is on fire. Would you say, well, yeah, I really don't want to disturb them, or offend them by telling them that. It might make my neighbor, our relationship really uncomfortable. I mean, think about what that sounds like. Yeah, the other day my friend's house was on fire. I don't think he knew it. I think he was inside it. Uh, he must have been asleep. I thought about telling him his house was on fire, but then I wondered what he would think. He might get embarrassed. Or what, what if I went in there and I got all stinky from the smoke? I, I mean, that wouldn't be good. And what about my friends who don't believe in fires? They, they don't exist. I mean, what will they think? And besides, isn't that the fireman's job to do that? You know, I really don't want to stand before the Lord when the Lord looks for fruit in my life and all he sees is excuses. Here's my point. Salvation is a big deal. It's a privilege to be able to share the hope of salvation to a dying world. It's something we really, really should not take for granted. So when it comes to salvation, the prophets predicted it. The angels pondered it. This brings us to our final point, number three, when it comes to salvation. Jesus provided it. Look back at verse 11, and we see how he provided it. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand, and here it is, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. He provided salvation for us through the sufferings of Christ. Isaiah 53 tells us, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. His stripe, by his stripes we are healed. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking of Jesus, 
for he made him to be me for him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, salvation is found in no one else or nothing else, only through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us by going to the cross, dying for the on the cross and rising again from the dead. Salvation has come. That's why Acts 4 verse 12 tells us, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. Acts 4.12 I want to close with this. Turn your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 2. That's two books to your left. There's James and then there's Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. As you're turning there, the book of Hebrews we know was written to Jewish believers who were in danger of neglecting their salvation by going back to Judaism because of family pressure, threats to disown them for believing in Jesus. A key argument presented in the book is why go back to the shadows of Judaism when you can have the real thing, when you can have Jesus. And and the writer builds his case by showing that all the prophets of old and all the sacrifices and festivals and rituals were all pointing to Jesus Christ. Same thing that we've been looking at. These were the shadows, the pictures, but Jesus is the real thing. Now look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The writer says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? That term, drift away, in verse 1, is a nautical term, and it it has to do with, with a ship drifting out to sea. It can happen when, it, when a ship forgets to, to, to chart the wind and, and the tides, or they forget to secure the, the uh, anchor at night. Boats can, can drift past harbors in the storms when that happens. It's kind of like, you know, for me growing up in Southern California, I'd like to body surf. And when you go out in the water, you know, I mean, if there's an undertow or turn, you can get pulled to one side. So you get in the water, you look at the lifeguard stand that's right there, you look at the blue chair that's sitting there, so you, you mark where it is, but, you know, but if you take your eyes off of that as you're, you know, circling like that, you can find yourself drifted away. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. There is this undertow in this world, an unseen current that is, it has its goal to take us miles away from Christ, our landmark. Which is why we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with, with the race with endurance, that is, uh, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. faith. See, the idea is fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is our, our landmark. And don't ever take your eyes off of Him. Every corner, every mountain, every obstacle is seen with Jesus in our view. He's our leader. He's our strength. And He's able to chart the winds of circumstances in our life and get us safely through any turbulence that comes our way. He's able to give us a heavenly perspective rather than a fearful earthly one. But that is why the writer of Hebrews tells us to be careful that we don't drift away and neglect such a great salvation. And notice also here that the drifting occurs is directly related to us not giving earnest heed to the Word of God. That word earnest heed translates translates a verb meaning to pay careful attention. See, the idea is not giving an earnest heed, paying careful attention to the Word of God, and that's directly related to neglecting our salvation. That's how we do it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That word neglect means to sit passively by or to make light of something to underappreciate. It really means that apathy or complacency. How does that happen? How can we neglect so great a salvation? Well, it begins in our hearts. 
when I failed to realize how great my salvation truly is, when I failed to realize what I am saved from and what I am saved for, I'm saved from my sin. I'm saved from the penalty of my sin. I'm saved from hell, from the torments and the fires of hell. I'm saved from the wrath of Almighty God that we poured out on the Christ-rejecting world. And yet I'm saved for heaven. I'm saved for eternity with Jesus Christ. I'm saved for eternal life. But you see, if I'm neglecting such a great salvation that the prophets predicted, the angels pondered, and that Jesus provided, then I'm on the road to my heart becoming dull spiritually, which results in losing that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's leading. And it'll leave me spiritually weak and in danger of becoming shipwrecked. We can't allow... Uh, we can't neglect the salvation by letting the cares and responsibilities of this life pull us away from the Lord. We can neglect the salvation by going after temporary things, by thinking that I need more money or a bigger home or a nicer car. We can, can neglect our salvation by not applying the resources that are ours in Christ. That's why we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. As we close here this morning, maybe you're here today, Christian, but you realize you've been neglecting your salvation. Maybe you've been distracted and you've allowed things to get in the way and you've taken your eyes off the Lord and you're beginning to drift. Maybe you've allowed compromise to come into your life and you're going, how did I get way over here? I know I should be here, but man, Lord, I'm way away from you. Listen, come back to Christ today. The anchor of your soul. Don't wait. Don't say tomorrow. Make it right today. Give him your burdens. Give him your cares. Put them in his hands right now. And if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, let me ask you, are you saved? Why would you not want to be when you understand all that Jesus has done for you? I'm going to close with this story. An unknown author wrote this. Longfellow could take a sheet of paper, write a poem on it, and make it worth $60,000. That's talent. Rockefeller could sign a piece of paper and make it worth millions. That's capital. A seamstress can take a piece of material worth $5 and make it into clothing worth $50. That's skill. A merchant can buy an article for $0.80, put it on his counter, and sell it for a dollar. That's business. But God can take a worthless, sinful life, wash it, cleanse it, put his Holy Spirit within it, and make it a blessing to all humanity. That is salvation. And that salvation is available for all who choose to accept it. Let's not take it for granted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had this morning to look into your word and look into the lives of these prophets, Lord, that spoke of the grace that would be shown to us, the salvation that would come to us and for us. Lord, we've looked into the, to the, to the lives of these angelic beings, Lord, who, who ponder this thing called salvation, this thing called grace that you've given to us. And Lord, we've looked at your son, how he wanted the cross, took my penalty for my sin, our penalty for our sins upon himself. And by us placing our faith and trust in him, repenting of our sins, we can have this salvation that is so freely offered and so freely talked about. And I pray, Lord God, that if there's anyone here that is not saved, they would get saved this morning. They would stop running from you and they would surrender their hearts and lives to you. I also pray, Lord, if there's any of us here that have been drifting away, we've been taking our salvation for granted, we, we don't realize how amazing this is. Lord, help us to get our eyes back focused on you. Our lives 
Lord, directed by you, Lord, anchored deeply in you, Lord God. Help us not to drift any longer. Forgive us for drifting. Forgive us for, for going our own way, Lord, and not seeking you. Forgive us for not taking this thing that you've done for us, our salvation, uh, uh, seriously, Lord. We're saved. We're gonna, our sin's forgiven. Thank you for that, God. We rejoice in how great you are, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's ask Daniel to do one last